Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 32 today that Mike read for us. And if you remember all the way back to the introduction of the book of Romans, uh, we said Romans could be outlined in, in eight parts. And we've covered part one, which is Paul's introduction to the gospel of God's righteousness that goes up through verse 17. And we're several verses into part two, which is man's universal need for the gospel of God's righteousness. It begins in verse 18. It goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And what transitions us from the, the, both of those points, the transition between them is the Apostle Paul's eagerness to preach the, the gospel of Christ. Paul says he's eager because the gospel, in the gospel, God's way of receiving his righteousness is, is revealed. And that's what we must have in order to enter heaven. So Paul's eager to share that message and He's also eager because the message is urgently needed. And in the beginning in verse 18 through verse 23, Paul explains why the message is needed. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, and it's revealed as a response to mankind's rejection of his Creator. Since the beginning of the world, God has revealed himself to mankind both in them and around them, both in them through, through the conscience and an awareness of God, an awareness there's a deity, and, and around us through, through creation. So the Bible clearly says God is knowable, and His power and His nature are, are discernible, which renders all men without an excuse for rejecting that, that continual witness. So that's Paul's argument. Man, by nature, is not a truth seeker, but a truth suppressor. We've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, and verses 19 through 23, Paul describes the specific ways that man does that. Mankind denies the witness of creation. Man disrespects the worth of the Creator, refusing to be thankful. Man devises worthless beliefs instead, turns away from God to... Inward, and then man ultimately displaces the worship of God. And God's response to that is not neutral. He expresses His wrath in, in the world just as He reveals Himself. And He also stores it up in full strength for the judgment that's coming in the end. And Paul says, though, that people of all walks of life are guilty because of this rejection. The Gentiles suppress the truth, and then the, the Jews do it in a different way, but they're also guilty, and in fact, universally, all people sin. And the last time we looked at this first condemnation that was directed to the Gentiles, and we saw it's broken down in two parts. So verses 18 through 23, which we covered the, the last two weeks, God's righteousness or His righteous wrath is revealed. And then today, we'll begin to look at verses 24 through 30, or 40. Sorry, 24 through 32, where God describes the consequences of, of idolatry and the downward spiral uh, of society. So verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. Verses 19 through 23, that wrath is deserved. And then verses 24 through 32, how that wrath is currently being poured out in, in general upon society, in individuals. 
So there's the reality of God's wrath, the reasons for God's wrath, and then the results of God's wrath. And, and you don't have to look very far to, to see, uh, see this passage in living color, do you? I mean, when you hear Romans 1 read, the world that we live in is a living lab that provides a very sad example, a pertinent example to, to Romans 1. I mean, sometimes whenever, whenever I preach, I have to give you an illustration to, to help you imagine what the writer means. Like, we, we, we've never seen the, a pagan temple operate in the middle of Corinth, so, so you have to describe what it was like and give illustrations of what it was like to have that in the, in the background. Or, or maybe speak in word pictures to help you to see in your mind's eye and understand. But unfortunately, I don't have that problem this morning. The graphic sketch of this text is, is all around you. It's on the news. Every time you, you hit your remote, it's in every movie and in, in, in sitcom. It's laced in social media accounts and corporations. It's in the halls of, of schools and often in the classrooms. It's it's even on Sesame Street and Hallmark. It's everywhere. So my task today is not to give you an illustration to help you imagine. It's to help you interpret what you already see through the lens of Scripture. And given the topic is sexual sin, let me also add, I will not be any more graphic than the, the Bible is. So you don't have need for concern of, of your children. In fact, your children are going to be confronted with these things in our world. And as one preacher said, the best place for your children to hear about it first is from God. And besides that, the truth is stabilizing. Uh, I can remember my friend Rick Holland telling the, the story of one of his boys coming home uh, shocked about something that he heard in, in school. And he, he relayed what he heard to his dad, and Rick's response was, Oh yeah, that, that's nothing new. The, God actually talks about it in the Bible. And his son was kind of surprised that something that disgusting was actually discussed in the Bible. And he said, really? And Rick said, yeah. He opened up to Leviticus and, and he read it to him. And his son's response was, huh, well, then it's nothing new, is it? And rather than rattle him, it, it gave him comfort that God had already spoken about it. And as a creator, there's nothing that he doesn't know, including the depths of sin. And, and so while... Well, what we hear about today is not pretty, it's crucial. I mean, Paul answers the questions, how is the world in such a pitiful shape? Where did all of these shameful perversions come from? Why are we in such a sexualized condition? I mean, have you ever wondered how we, we got where we're at in, in society? Some of you have never known anything other than this society. Others uh, that have come from a, a former generation, you, you know, you, you look with this just a, a dizzying disbelief. And maybe how you ended up on the dead-end road that, that you're on this morning. Was it because they took prayer out of, out, out of school? Partially, but, but more specifically, or more precisely, it's because we removed God from our minds. That's Paul's argument here. The simple answer is what's going on in people and in our culture is a result of rejecting God. And when mankind rejects the witness of God and attempts to remove Him from their knowledge, the result is devastating. 
Instead of appreciating and contemplating the glory of the Creator and all that He's made, human beings have turned to created things to worship and contemplate. And in this idolatry, Paul says, is the source of all the immorality in the world. And when mankind intentionally rejects God over and over and over, because God gives that witness day after day, night after night, then eventually God gives them over to their own deeds and desires, which is how His wrath is being manifested in the world right now. The structure of this passage is, is very easy to see. It hangs on three ominous markers. The, the phrase, God gave them over, or God delivered them, is used three times. It's repeated in verse 24, 26, and 28. If you would, at verse 24. It says, Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. In verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. And in verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Each one describes a descending consequence of man's re rejection. It's an active expression of, of God's wrath. In verse 24, God gives the people over to their immoral lusts initially. And verse 26, then they're abandoned to unnatural passions. And in verse 28, they're, they're, they're given over to broken minds, minds that are illogical, minds that don't function properly. And that depraved mind increases in all of these areas uh, corporately, which is why you have this long list of, of all these things that are that are sinful, uh, a, a depraved mind, a broken mind, a mind that, that is, has, is absent of God is like an accelerant of sin. An accelerant is a, is a substance that can, that can mix with, with another substance and cause an increase, an increase of speed of the process. And so a broken mind without reason or righteousness increases all forms of sin. It's how that you can you can have people that um, are in charge of, of medical things, uh, denying biology. It's Paul says whenever you see a person or a society embrace sexual sin generally and homosexuality specifically in reasoning, they exhibit reasoning that's irrational. It's a sure sign that God's patience has has run out and He's turned them over to judgment. And Paul says in his wrath, God removes his speed bumps as a consequence of the their, of their rejection. And he does that in three particular ways. A person is left to, to deviling desires, degrading passions, and a depraved mind. Or we'll call it three consequences of rejecting God. For a society or individuals that reject God over and over... The consequence is, number one, you're handed over to unclean desires, verses 24 and 25. You're turned over to unnatural passions, verses 26 and 27. And you're given over to uh, an unfit mind, verses 28 through, through 32. And the first consequence of rejecting God, uh, Paul tells us his unclean desires in verses 24 and, and 25. Look, if you would, at verse 24. 
You'll get these one at a time if you didn't get them down. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says in this first expression of of turning over, there's a decisive reckoning, a a dishonoring result among among them, and then there's a a denying reason that, that it comes to begin with. Now, you already heard the world's presentation of what is happening uh, around us. And, and today, maybe for the first time, you'll, you'll, you'll learn the biblical reality of what's taking place. I mean, the world says a rejection of God and morality is good. It's, it's love. It's, it's freedom. It's, it's enlightenment. And they're sincere whenever they say that. The Bible says it's evil. It's the opposite of love. It's bondage, and it's based on a, on a broken mind, a mind that is unable to reason. And while the world says it's progress, God says it's a distinct sign that He's left the building. It's not enlightenment. It's an evidence of His wrath, and, and it leads to an abuse of creation and one another as creatures. And Paul says for those who won't hear what God says... and and they continue in their rebellion, God gives them over to these things, and they fall deeper and deeper in, into darkness. And Notice Paul starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, God. Um, he is now giving God's response to, to mankind's unthankful truth suppression of all of God's revelation. And it's vital to note in this passage that it's, a, that it's a response to mankind's rejection. This is not what God desires to give to mankind. He takes no pleasure in doing this. But it is His response to their continual rejection. So God initiates with revelation saying, Here I am, and man rejects that, not just mildly, but forcefully, and then takes up the worship of something else. So God responds in giving them over to that to that idolatry. These passages present God as gracious and, and, and willing, and man is rejecting and unwilling and, until God finally responds. And his response is incredibly serious. I mean, the word handed over means to be delivered over to custody for judgment. It's used in the Old Testament. For Israel's enemies, whenever God delivers in the enemies of Israel in, into the Israelites' hands, it's, it's what God will do if Israel violates their covenant with, with Him. Uh, Leviticus 26 is just a, one of a number of examples. He says, I'll send pestilence among you so that you will be delivered into your enemies' hands. It's, it's God delivering somebody over to something. And here it, it has twin actions. It's passive, God taking his, his hands off, and, and then it's an active one. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of deliverance. Giving the, the sinners over to their own desires, God withdraws from them. He removes his hand or, or, or his influence. He, he effectively gives people who repeatedly reject the truth what they want. Life without God. Godet said, mankind is like a boat tied to the, the dock in a, in a raging river. And as long as the vessel is secured and tied to the bank, it's, it's safe. But when man repeatedly rejects God, uh, God ceases to hold the boat. 
and it's dragged by the current of the river. But even stronger than the passive, allowing a person to, to go, it's just like turning them loose. Uh, Doug Moose said this, world does, uh, this word doesn't mean that he simply lets go of the boat. He, he actually pushes it downstream, turns them over, he gives them over to that. It, God's not causing the sin, but he, but he aims the sinner toward the destruction that, that's due. It's a divine reaction to human rejection. So just like a judge who hands a prisoner uh, uh, to the punishment of his crime that he's earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. Doug Moo again. The first thing that he hands them over to is unchecked lusts. The unchecked lusts of sexual immorality. Look at you at verse 24. It says, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. The, the word for lust that's, that's used here is epithumia. It's a, it's a word that, that can mean good or bad desires, but it's really strong desires. Um, it can be expressed in righteous ways or unrighteous ways. Uh, Jesus used it in Luke twenty two fifteen when... When he told his disciples, I have earnestly desired, it's the same word. We have to say earnestly desired in, in English to get, the, to get the weight of it. Jesus said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He wanted to take the Passover with, with, with his disciples before he went to the cross. That's a good expression. But Paul says God's judgment is to turn people over to the evil kind. The strong desires that are wrong the kind that leads to impurity, and more specifically, what's expressed in sexual immorality. Now, why does Paul go from... Why does he focus on that specifically? I mean, why does he go from idolatry to illicit sex? I mean, how do you make that connection? I mean, aren't there other strong desires that are consequences of rejecting God? Yes, there is. But immoral intimacy is what human beings turn to when they lack intimacy with God. That's exactly what idolatry produces. So the rejection of God in verses 19 through 23 creates a distance that mankind can sense. They, they may not know where the distance is coming from, but they sense an emptiness or a distance. So they, they seek something else to fulfill it. And as human beings, we're created to have intimacy with God. But Paul says when we reject Him, we reject we turn to counterfeits to try and supply what's missing. And so when sinners lose divine intimacy, they turn and look for human intimacy to replace it. There's a reason that people that don't go to church find all kinds of ways to fellowship, whether it's the, the ball field or the Moose Lodge or the VFW or whatever it is. It's because we're hardwired for, for relationship, especially with God. And when that relationship with Him is absent, people turn elsewhere to fill that, that void. And the deepest form of intimacy available in all of creation is sex. Because there's no closer bond a person can make with another. Joel James said, When sinners turn their back on God and therefore lose divine intimacy for which they were created, they're turned to substitutes and try to gain back what they've lost. I mean, what do you put in the place of of the, the God-shaped vacuum in your life. I mean, if, if you expel God, think of the void that that leaves. And what can you put in that place that, that would even come close to, to filling it up? Nothing comes close to Him, but, 
But sexual intimacy is the nearest thing that we have. So that's where sinners turn. And when they pursue their sin over and over and that distance gets greater and greater, they try to fill it with more and more and God finally turns them over to to their sin. One commentator said there's a reason why idolatrous cultures are immoral cultures and why America gets more sexualized the further it gets away from God. That's what's going on. When man loses connection with the Creator, they turn to a connection with his creation and God ultimately uses that as a judgment. Just as true intimacy has a tremendous ability to build people up, immoral intimacy has an equally destructive power to tear people down. Look at verse 24. It says, so that the result of of this turning over, these these unleashed desires in, in immoral ways, the result is so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Here's the result of God unleashing their passion. You want to know what, it, what will come if you just, you just let it go? If it feels good, do it. Right here it is. You'll dishonor your body. The, the word dishonored means to treat it with contempt. You, you treat your, your own body with contempt. You insult your body. That's the idea. And if you take away all of the emotion and you just you look at maybe in your own life the train wreck of decisions that you've made or you look at other people that you love and know or just people in general, you, you can see a dishonoring. Uh, it, it's like they don't care for themselves. And Paul defines specific ways that people do that in the next verse. But here he reminds us that intimacy is a gift from God to a married couple It's a close-as-you-can-get kind of act. It's the closest things human beings can do with their bodies. And and when that's done in marriage, it's honoring before the Lord. It's it's not defiling. In fact, Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage and everything in it is a picture of Christ's love for for His church. And Intimacy builds up a a relationship. It's holy and it's pure. It's something to be celebrated. Hebrews 13.4 tells us marriage is to be held in honor among all, including the marriage bed, and so it's to remain undefiled. These bad passions aren't to be unleashed in it. And then he says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will, will judge. Fornicators and adulterers are, are, are defiling, meaning that any type of relations before marriage, fornicators, a general term, and, and any type after marriage, a, a, adultery. And so... Paul says sexual impurity has a, has a unique ability to dishonor your body. I remember Tommy Nelson giving an illustration of this years ago, and I haven't forgotten it, maybe 20 years ago. He, he said, uh, sex is like fire. It was designed by God to be enjoyed in the fireplace of marriage. And if it's there, it's, it's warm, it's inviting, it's beautiful. But if you build that fire outside of marriage, you, you, like you build it, it's like building it in the middle of your living room floor. and You're going to burn your house down. And in the Bible, the covenant relationship of marriage is the fireplace for, for this intimacy. It protects the fire. It makes it secure. It keeps you from, from burning your, your, your house down and... The world thinks it's the other way around. It preaches intimacy leads to relationship. And that's why you see worldly people when they first get together, there's a lot of passion and, 
And you, and you talk to them, and it's like they found the love of their life. Only to die as fast as, as it came and, and leave them cold. And I mean, how many soulmates can celebrities have, right? I mean, I found my forever love, only to become a forgotten lust a few months later, and to find another one and another one. But that's what it really feels like to them. I mean, they're not being insincere. They, they have these genuine feelings, and, and you'll have those feelings as well, if, if, even if you violate God's plan. Because that, that intimacy is, is a God-given catalyst. It, it's created to, to enhance a selfless, selfless relationship that, that's already there in marriage. But, but when that gasoline is is placed on the, the wet wood of, of no covenant. To, it, it burns the passion, and, it, and it's hot, but, but it never really catches the logs. And, and even worse, it'll leave you charred and empty. It won't fulfill your longing or your emptiness inside. It will create even more, and that's why people hop from person to person. Look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. It's like being freed from the confines of an airplane without a parachute. You're free. But the ground's coming. And just so we don't forget the reason that this happens, verse, verse 25 reminds us. Look if you would at verse 25. It says, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's an echo of Genesis 3 here. Can you hear it in verse 25? Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent instead of God and they, they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And who you listen to is your master. Obedience is worship. And sinners who reject God are refusing to listen to Him. And they're listening to somebody else. Tom Schreiner said, uh, verse 25 is a reminder that the fundamental sin here isn't sexual. It's, it's a failure to worship God. And all of this judgment is an outflow of man's rejection. Instead of receiving the revelation that that God's given them, they suppress the truth, and the result of that truth suppression is they turn completely away from God, make their own gods, and for that, God turns them over to their own desires and, and sexual sin. And now he defines the kinds of sexual sins that they can devolve in. The second consequence of rejecting God is you're turned over to unnatural passions. Look at, look at verse 26. It says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the, the due penalty of their error. Paul describes God's delivering judgment here as inordinate affections. An incongruent exchange that leads to indecent acts and, and there's an inherent penalty that goes along with it. It's very clear that the focus of the sin here is homosexuality. 
And no doubt you come in here today with, with, with ideas about that. I have no idea how you've been affected by, by those ideas. The, the world around you influences you to say that it's okay, and you, you may have heard it mocked in school as, as being something weird and bizarre. You, you may have had horrible things happen to you. Perhaps you've been influenced by the church, good or bad. Some professing believers want to minimize it and, uh, and approve it, trying to use Scripture and... Others who are well-meaning have spoken about it harshly. And so knowing that, your, your task is to, put, is to put all of that aside. You, you just have to put all of that aside and simply look at what God says about it in this passage. And, and he describes homosexual behavior in four ways. He says it's shameful or degrading. It's unnatural. It's indecent and it's a perversion. That's the word for error here. It's a very strong word. It's an act contrary to creation. But it's not extraordinary or unforgivable. I mean, God doesn't say that this is, a, this is an unpardonable or radioactive kind of sin. I mean, homosexuality is not a sin that makes a person different from other sinners. That's not Paul's point. His point is any sexual sin that you're engaged in that's habitual is, is an evidence of God's wrath. And so if you have same-sex attractions or you've acted on those, Jesus Christ can forgive you just like He can anyone. But it is a further step away from God. And so this passage urges you to repent because what's coming is a mind that cannot reason, that goes along with this. And the first thing that God calls you to hear about it is, is it's a desire. A desire for someone of, of the same sex is inordinate. It's an inordinate affection. Now, I want you to notice that Roman, Romans 1 condemns both desires and actions. God says He gave them over to degrading passions. The, the, the word is pathos, where, where we get passion. It, it literally means affections. God gave them over to these affections, being drawn to something or or someone. But then it talks about the acts of the behavior, men with men committing indecent acts. So It's important because some will say today that same-sex attractions as a desire is okay as long as you don't act on them. But, But Paul clearly says that's not true. And if you want more proof of that, you only have to go to the words of Jesus. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said God's law is applied all the way down to the heart, not just the acts. Uh, Matthew 5, 27, he said, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, the act of adultery. You don't commit adultery. But I say unto you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in her heart, in his heart. So our Lord says if, if a person sinfully desires someone other than their spouse, they violate God's law of adulteries. I mean, of course you violate the law if you act on it. But Jesus makes, Jesus makes it clear that desires violate God's law as well. They're, they're not equated. Desiring something is, is not equated as acting on it. The Lord wasn't reducing the law. He was sharpening it. I mean, the Pharisees have made it a butter knife that cut, it on, that cut only external sins, but Jesus turns it back into the razor blade that it was, cutting both the motives of the heart and the acts. And in the same way, 
Romans 1 says sexual sin is a byproduct of the lust of the human heart. That's where it starts. Lust that's contained in your heart is not the same level as acting on it and having some physical relation, but, but both make you guilty before God. Now pay close attention because Paul is not saying that you won't have desires. He says just the opposite. He, he says they're wrong if you do, and they may be connected to, to any number of things. As I said, some bad things that have happened to you, but you may have had those desires from a young age, and in fact the judgment here is on people who feed them and turn, or turned over to those desires, which means you had to have the desires to begin with. And so when someone says homosexuality is a choice, that's partially true, but, but it's incomplete unless you understand that actions come from desires. So those choices come from the desires that are there, and that's where they start. And, but desiring something doesn't make it acceptable or right. Just like people who have desires to do things that they shouldn't while dating before marriage. It doesn't make it right. Strong desires there. I have all kinds of desires, but, but having them doesn't determine whether they're right or wrong. God, who is our creator, who sits above us and outside of us, defines good and evil. And he defines same-sex desires and, and the behavior as degrading and sinful. And those sinful desires come from a depraved nature. And so what you're born with is depravity, and that depravity affects your desires. And those desires, what comes out of a depraved heart is, is crooked. And when you act on those desires, you're, you're filled with them, and you can get to the point where God will turn you over to them. So what seems natural and freeing is, is actually a judgment if you pursue them. You're actually being further bound by your sin and the choices that you've made. And what you need to hear is, is while those desires can be powerful, God says don't forget that there is a greater power even still. You remember the light, the torch that Paul gives us before we descend into this dungeon? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. The power of sin is great. Those desires might, be, might feel and seem uncontrollable to you, but Paul says the power of God is greater in Jesus Christ. And that's where the hope is this morning. Regardless of your sin, you need a power that's greater than the power of your sin. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the power of Jesus Christ is greater than all of your sin, whatever it is, including your desires. But you can't be double-minded about it. You can't say desires are okay, but actions aren't. James 1 says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And if you don't replace those desires with righteous ones, it can move to sinful acts and the judgment is worse. Look, you would at verse 26. It says, For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. Notice all the descriptive terms. What it starts with is, is a little word for, meaning it's explaining how these degrading passions express themselves. Three times he uses the word for nature here. Women exchange what is natural for what is unnatural. and Men abandoning the, the natural use of a woman for indecent acts. 
There's some who even, even those who profess Christ, that say homosexuality is natural for some people. They're born that way. And so God made them that way. He didn't go that far. And now Paul's already addressed the desi- where the desires come from. And, but what about being created by God that way? I mean, is that true? Is that biblical? I mean, you hear stories of people. I hear stories of people and counseling and, and, and witnessing. I, I felt this way as a young age. I just knew. You can turn on the TV. And, and God helped me see that this is the way that He's made me. Well, God addresses that right here. He says, if you believe that, it's an evidence that you're already under His wrath. Because He says it's contrary to creation. It's unnatural. Meaning you, were, you, you weren't created by God that way. Let me, let me show you that, that it's always been this way from the words of Jesus. Look back at Matthew 19. Turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19... We'll be looking at verse 3 at the very beginning. This is a, just before the encounter with the rich young ruler where Jesus is getting questioned by some Pharisees about divorce. And what he says is very revealing. And it's related to nature. Romans 1. If you would at verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And here's the Lord's answer in in verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, talking about the the intimate act. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You hear that verse quoted in weddings. When did Jesus say the plan for a man and a woman was, was originated? He says it's in the beginning, meaning in creation. Have you not read? Where's he talking about reading? He's talking about Genesis. And it hadn't, he said it hasn't changed for the Pharisees who want a loophole to divorce their wives, and it surely hasn't changed today whenever we think we're too sophisticated for God. Or, it doesn't bring freedom. It brings judgment. But notice what else Jesus emphasizes. He not only says, have you not read from the beginning, addressing the time frame, whenever God established male and female and and their their relations with one another in marriage. He, He says God has made them male and female, addressing the type of relationship that God has has established. He made them male and female so they would be able to to come together, male and female, in marriage, and they'll leave. father and mother, and, and do that. And he says those two, male and female, shall be joined, and they're joined by God, meaning that's they're created that way, describing the sexual relationship that's appropriate. And then he says any other form of sin. Look at verse 9. Now notice he's addressing divorce, but, 
but he covers everything. I say to you, verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples understood that, uh, exactly what, what Jesus meant. Look at what they said in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. There, there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made that way by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. You know what Jesus says? He says, you're right. It is that serious. Some are to be married and some have the gift of singleness. Those, there's, there are some who are born without sexual desires. There are others who are made eunuchs by, by others. And there are those who have cho- chosen celibacy to serve God. And, but outside of that, back to creation, God established male and female to go together. And they go together in marriage. So when you hear people say the evidence that homosexuality is okay is that Jesus never spoke about it, that's a lie. Right here he does. And he says what God established from the beginning is a relationship between a man and a woman. Turn back to Romans 1. In fact, in this passage in Romans 1, Paul uses a specific term for for male and female to make sure that you know it's, it's male gender and female gender. And other types are contrary to creation in a natural. I mean, do you see what the argument that Paul's making here? Remember the argument from immorality? Turning from the creation to the creator? He's saying just as idolatry is unnatural, he's saying homosexuality is unnatural as well. Mankind was made to worship His Creator. So worshiping the creation is not the way it's supposed to be. It's contrary to man's nature before the fall, the the way that, that we were made. In the same way, homosexuality is contrary to nature as well. It's contrary to creation. I mean, that's Paul's whole argument here. Homosexuality leaves the natural way physical bodies have been created to interact and and it departs from natural desires. It, it says women with women and men with men. There's not an inkling in this text that Paul's talking about uh, uh, pederasty, adults with children, or abusive relationships, which is what some people will say to twist this text to justify homosexuality. They, they say God's only, condem- only condemning the what Josh Duggar was just convicted of, or some type of misguided abuse. That's exegetically ridiculous. I mean, no serious Bible scholar would attempt that because there's no basis for it in the text at all. It's just people who are trying to muddy the water and they're not your friends, even if they call themselves a Christian. It's a serious thing to do because this text says that that embedded in the sin is a, is a judgment that's, that's coming. It's a sin that is, has consequences right now. There are inordinate affections in verse 26. 
it commits an incongruent exchange. It engages in indecent acts, and, and those indecent acts receive an inherent penalty. Look at verse 27. Men with men committing, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now notice the spear that God says this penalty will come in. It's in themselves. The word means a reward or wage, something that, that's earned. And what is earned for this type of sin is a due penalty for, uh, of the error. There, there, there's, when you commit sin, there's, there's penalty that's coming. There's judgment that's coming. But, but there's also immediate judgment that, that comes. There's a, there's a cause and effect. You sin, you feel guilty. This is not like an error on a test. This is a, it's literally a fitting wage for such a perversion. It's what's earned. The consequence is not defined. It's some undefined consequence. But, it, but it's a consequence for the sin. It goes along with the sin of, of indecent acts, and it's in them. It, it's resident in them. It's not coming. It's, it's already here, right, right now. And so if you do these things, then... Judgment that's coming because of the rejection, but there's also a penalty that's operating right now. Spiritual, for sure. I mean, emotional, for sure. Physical as well, whether diseases or maladies related to, to, to their sin, anxiety, depression, turmoil internally. It, it's all there. And you say, I don't feel it yet. I don't feel that yet. Or maybe you have someone who says, I, I mean, I, I'm as happy as I could be. See, in fact, I've never felt more natural or freer in my life. That doesn't mean it's not coming. Kent Hughes told the story of a farmer who was an unbeliever, and this guy was really hostile to the gospel. He, he lived right beside a church. He owned a piece of land, and so the piece of land right beside the church, he, he plowed and, and planted, a, planted a garden in. And on Sunday, he took great joy running the tractor back and forth and back and forth. And right whenever the, the preacher was preaching or the hymns were, were being sung. and Spring came and in went the corn and it, what he planted sproutly, uh, sprouted and it grew greatly. By the 4th of July, it was knee high, he said. And, and in the fall, there was a tremendous harvest I mean, just amazing harvest. And the farmer had such great satisfaction in this that he wrote a letter to the pastor of the church. And in the letter he stated, quote, It's obvious that God doesn't exist because I went against what Christians feel are the structures of God and look how I was blessed. Look at my field. And the pastor wrote just one line back to him, God doesn't settle his accounts in October. So when does God settle his accounts? Well, it's not only in the end. Oh, it's coming in the end. What that farmer didn't realize is that in his boasting, in the fact that he would write that to the pastor and wasn't convicted by it, that in and of itself was an act of judgment. 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the point is, the fool doesn't realize he's a fool. And you might be here this morning in one of two conditions. You're here and you know what you're doing is wrong. And if that's you, you should rejoice. It's an evidence that God's not forsaken you in your own sin. The message is God's grace to help you repent and remind you that He loves you. But if you're here and there's opposition in your heart and in your mind, you're thinking like this doesn't matter, this is just nonsense, you're in a very dangerous position. You have evidence that your heart is hardening. And it's you that's hardening it. And because of that, God is hardening you. You realize there are only two responses to the word. Either your heart is softened unto salvation toward conviction. You hear it and and you're drawn and you're convinced and you understand. Or you hear it and you press back against it and there's a callus that's formed and you get harder and harder and harder. Because after a rejection of God, the next thing that man rejects is the image of God, and then they blur the lines between the Creator and creation, and then they blur the lines between men and women, because mankind is the highest created order made in the image of God. And, and you just, just watch the progression here. I mean, God gave them up in their hearts, and then their bodies, then in their nature, and Finally, their minds were unable to, to work to even find their way back. What a horrible descent. And first step is just rejecting the witness that's around you and being unthankful. Suppressing that clear truth leads you to not acknowledge God or give Him thanks. And then you turn to worshiping other things. You turn to contrary thinking and that leads to worshiping to other things. And you finally get to the point where everything is so broken, you you can't even think logically and you don't even know it. May I say to you, wherever you're at on this trajectory, Jesus can save you. And here's the beautiful thing. While you watch this descent, this this progression, you you don't have to reverse the process or... Or, or, or climb back out or swim back upstream. If the, if the boat has already left the bank and, and it's in the middle of the, uh, of the rapids, the, the glory of Jesus Christ is He doesn't whistle from the bank saying, come back to me. He comes to you and gets in the boat with you. He condescends to where we're at, including wherever you're at in your sin. And what you do is... You cry out to Him, and you say, I've done all of these things, I've been a fool, save me. Because I can promise you, unless Jesus Christ gets in the boat with you, you will never overcome the raging rapids of your desires, or your acts, or your thinking. But if He's the captain of the ship, He can lead you to shore. Third consequence is you're handed over to an unfit mind, which leads to broken reasoning and a barrage of wickedness, this big long list, and ultimately a brazen approval. And we'll cover that next time when we come back from, from Christmas.
This morning, I just want you to bow your heads as we pray together. Can you hear the whistle, the Lord? You say, yeah, but it's getting fainter and fainter. It's really dark wherever I'm at. What Paul says is cry out in darkness because just as God's wrath is revealed, the righteousness of Christ is revealed in the gospel, the good news. The Lord will hear you. He'll come to you and He'll save you if you turn to Him. Father, we come before You and we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You how how Your truth stabilizes us. It makes sense out of things that are just jostled around and so many voices and just your, your truth is just clarion. And I thank you for it. I also thank you, Lord, that whenever I was in the mess that I was in and I did all of these things rejecting your truth and my boat was in the middle of rapids, you didn't leave me there, you came to me and you'll do that for anyone who will cry out to you this morning and repent and believe, and I I pray they would do that. And I thank you for your great grace that comes to us in Christ, and it's in His name I pray. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing. Sing in response to the Lord. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely dim In the light of His glory and grace Amen, amen. Um, If you have any need... Uh, you can come to one of the elders, one of the pastors, or we have a counseling center. would love to help you. And I'll just encourage you to do that. Um, come back tonight. I would encourage you to do that as well. We're going to be bringing uh, 20 or so people into the fellowship tonight and hearing ministry updates, and then we'll have a uh, uh, reception afterwards. So um, with that, we'll be dismissed. Father, we, we love you. We thank you, and we ask you to dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.